Welcome to Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. We're two best friends entering the world of true crime. We'll be sharing the stories of some of the worst and most horrific murder cases in history with the help of professional criminologists. And we're taking you along for the ride. In this episode, we're looking into the life and crimes of the monster of Montmartre, Thierry Paula. Oh, that's why you didn't ask me about how Paris was in the car. Salut, Helen. Ça va? Oui. <laughs> uh, bisous, bisous. Coucou. Did you like your vacances en Paris? Oh, what? That was, I think that's how you say holiday in Paris. That's the only thing I remember from GCSE French. Uh, oui, je t'aime le magasin. I didn't even do GCSE French. This was pre-GCSE French. Um... Oui, je t'aime le magasin parce que je t'aime le magasin. No, wait, what did I just say? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> je t'aime le vacances en ville. Parce que je t'aime le magasin. I like holidays in the town because I like shops. That sounds lovely. Hopefully that's what I just said. Sorry. I got very confident when I was in Paris, like using easy vocab to order drinks or, you know, communicate with waiters and stuff. And then... They'd speak back to me in French and I would just go, I'm sorry, I can't do it. <laughs> because I tried. I tried and then, you know, they think, oh, they could speak a bit of French. So we'll speak French back at her. And I'm like, I literally know a few phrases. Où est la boulangerie? Sucre, sugar, ole. Oh, no, I'm not going to even bother. I'm not going to start. <laughs> anyway, it was nice. It was a great time. Lovely Paris. Bon I Paris. went into the catacombs and it was the coolest thing I really want to go they look so cool it was so cool there is two million people underneath the ground buried their bones there must be so many stories down there I know well to be fair that they are actually people that had already been buried like they were just overflowing cups they relocated them yeah because the uh, Trinity Hospital cemetery was overflowing so bad that it was causing like actual biological uh like oh, like issues biohazards in the Great. city like infections and they would say that they were like saying that uh the milk would go off and the wine was turning like they'd say all this stuff because the you know but because of all the ghosts well because of the i guess all the bacteria from the dead just, just overflowing and around. being there. Ew. So they they used these old quarries, these old limestone quarries underground to just chuck them all in. Just chucked them in. Yeah. But actually, you know what? <laughs> right. Because they actually, it looks quite pretty. There's leg bones, long bones with skulls to line the pathways and behind them is where the, all the rest of the bones are. And I was like, they do actually make quite good walls, don't they? Why Uh-oh. don't we just do that? Uh-oh, Helen's planning an extension on her house. And now you're getting ideas. Building materials are really expensive at the moment. I could just dig up just some grass some bones. <laughs> oh, my God. Norwich, there's going to be an outbreak of bones missing in Norwich. And Helen's just like, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> no, Helen. Stick to buying them off the internet. 
fake ones. No, it doesn't have bones. I in was her house. just, I just meant that if we ever need more resources, resources, human bones look kind of cool. They're quite strong as well, aren't they? They are strong. Yeah. Um. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this episode isn't about the catacombs. It is, however, about Paris. We oui. see what I've done. See what I've done there. Yeah. A, that's, that was a fun link, wasn't it? Look at us. Broadcasting heroes. <laughs> I'm a bit scared about this one, to be honest, because it is a lot of it's set in Paris. Um, there's a lot of French names. We've already established. Can't speak French. And so I just feel like I need to apologise in advance to every single person who ever might hear this, because I'm about to butcher, absolutely butcher some of these pronunciations. And I will do my best. And I did practice in the mirror a little bit. <laughs> I don't know why. I had to see myself to do it. I'm so glad I'm so glad you've got this episode because I can't even read fucking English (laughs) Um, the script is just all phonetics (laughs) please stick with it everybody stick with me and I'm sorry I'm so sorry it's okay I'm not judging you I'm sorry to you I'm sorry to me especially because like my accent is 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 weak at the best of times it's fluid (laughs) <laughs> I'm aware that sometimes the Croydon peaks through, sometimes the Norfolk peaks through. We'll we'll all just we're all in this together. It's fine. So uh, let's set the scene, shall we? <laughs> Tentatively, it's November twenty fifth, nineteen eighty seven, in Paris, France. Eighty seven year old Bertha Finalteri is at her home when a young man bursts into her flat, threatens her, and demands to know where she keeps her money. He doesn't stick around long, strangling her and leaving her for dead. Just two days later, he strikes again, strangling a 73-year-old woman and robs her too. A couple of days after that, the young man throws himself a huge 24th birthday party. As you do. He invited around 30 friends with the money he had stolen from his last victim. And everyone said that Thierry Paulau was the perfect friend to party with, that he was a fantastic party mate but no one knew where the money had come from. Little did they know, the money was all coming from the elderly women he was robbing and killing. Incredibly, Bertha Finalteri survived her attack. She gives the police a detailed description of the young man that tried to kill her. The young man was 21-year-old Thierry Paula, and along with his partner, Jean-Thierry Maturin, not only murdered and robbed, but tortured their victims. They even forced one victim to drink drain cleaner. I must admit that when I studied the case files, the photos and pictures were awful. It was difficult, very difficult. Paulin was a born criminal. In inverted commas, he was complete riffraff. Attacking a grandmother is a triumph without peril which brings no glory. A vaincre sans péril, on triomphe sans gloire. that poetic anyway let's go back to the start Thierry Paulin was born in the former French colony of Martinique in the Caribbean in November 1963 I always wanted to go there it's a gorgeous island his parents were only teenagers when they had him and they split up within days of his birth true crime author Geoffrey Wansall and criminologist Dr Elizabeth Yardley know more about the impact this had on a young Thierry his uh father abandoned he and his mother pretty shortly after his birth and went to France 
Thierry remained in Martinique and was effectively brought up by his paternal grandmother, who uh, owned a restaurant and apparently neglected him. He made an attempt to go back to live with his mother, who by this point had remarried and had another family, but he didn't fit in incredibly well with that. In fact, he was a troubled young man. This is a young lad who's being passed from pillar to post. He doesn't have a lot of stability, he doesn't have a lot of routine, and life is quite chaotic. He's somebody who finds that, that he never settles in anywhere, and he never really has a, a sense of belonging. You know, with um, when Elizabeth Yardley's talking about people's parts, you could literally copy and paste it. Every single one's the same, pretty much, isn't it? That's exactly what I thought. I was like, oh, this is textbook, isn't it? Yeah. Like, it's just if it's not a grandparent, it's a parent. Yeah, yeah. Child is neglected. Yeah. Instability. Tell you what, though, I'm getting some great parenting tips. Yeah. So far, this child is going to come out of me. I'm going to pay attention to it. Give it lots of love. And I'm going to try and create a stable environment. You really should because oh, yeah. you don't want to... If I start noticing like the dogs go missing or something, I'm probably going to get the kid to a psychologist pretty quick. Neighbours cat pinned to a tree. Yeah. What are your parenting goals? Anti-serial killer, baby. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't want to birth a serial killer. <laughs> that's, my, that's my goal. Thierry moved to France and then later, at the age of 17, joined the army and became a paratrooper where reportedly he was harassed by his peers due to his race and sexuality because he was mixed race and gay and they weren't very accepting of him, Mm. which is not very nice. So once again, still no stability, still no particular love. In 1984, at 21 years old, Thierry left the army and moved to Paris to be with his mother. He soon found work at a drag bar and it wasn't long until he found the belonging he seemed to be searching for in the arms of 19-year-old Jean-Thierry Mataran. The couple loved getting into drag and had aspirations of having their very own show. But that wasn't all they had in common. They also loved living the lavish party lifestyle and soon both became addicted to drugs and were living in the Hotel Laval together. I want to say L'Hotel Laval. Uh. Apparently they were invited to all the big Parisian parties and loved to dress up and put on a real show. Officer Jean-Claude Moule and prosecutor Philippe Bilger, who worked on the case, know what the pair were like. Uh, ils s'aimèrent profondément, uh, il me semble. Mais, uh, I think they really loved each other. I think there was real love there. But as part of that, Paulin dominated his partner, which explains a lot the influence that Maturin was under. He existed through Paulin. Obviously, I didn't see them in their everyday lives. I didn't see them living together. I didn't see them laughing. I didn't see them in their most intimate moments. But I think it's clear that Paulin dominated Maturin and gave him the drugs he needed. As so often in life, and that's also true for criminals, there was a strong one and a weak one in this couple. And the weak one was dragged into a life of crime by Paulin during these atrocities in 1984. That much is clear. Another common pattern that we see, isn't it? Yep. To pay for their lavish lifestyle, they turned to crime. Each case, the motive was straightforward. Money. Maturat and Pauline wanted to have a good time. 
They wanted to go out, they wanted to party, they wanted to go to nightclubs, they wanted to indulge their appetite for drugs, they wanted to wear different clothes, they wanted to be acknowledged as homosexual, and they were intent on having as good a time as possible. It was a spree, without any doubt, and a spree of the most murderous kind. So I think it's common knowledge by now how much we sort of have a soft spot for Jeff, don't we? Yeah. But he's trying to be a bit careful there, I think, with the, the term homosexual. And I, I, it's, I got a bit of it, the ick. Yeah. Ick. <laughs> Why <laughs> say it? Like, they're gay and they're proud is essentially what he was trying to say. Yeah. And that's fine. Michelle Arnold, who later served as Jean-Thierry Mataran's lawyer, says the killings always followed the same awful ritual, which involved tormenting the women with mental and physical abuse. Thierry Paulin les poussait dans l'appartement en leur tenant la bouche. Thierry Paulin pushed them into the flat, holding their mouths. Jean-Thierry Mataran closed the door. And from that moment on, Thierry Paulin hit them to get them to tell them where the money was. Jean-Thierry Mataran went to look for electrical cables to tie them up, so Thierry Paulin could tie them up. He went to search the flat. If the victim revealed where the money was, Jean-Thierry Mathurin went to check if it was there. And in the meantime, Thierry Paulin became incensed and ended up strangling them. It's already pretty brutal, and then it gets really grim. So to get the women to tell them where they hid their money and valuables, the pair would rip off their victims' clothes and burn their feet. One vi- what with? Do you know I don't actually know? I guess whatever they could find. One victim had a wine bottle smashed over her head. Another was suffocated with a mattress. They sort of were quite random. Journalist Dominique Rizé describes one of the most extreme cases where the killers forced an 84-year-old woman to drink drain cleaner. One victim was Alice Benaim. To tell them where her money was, Paula and Mathurin forced her to drink a product used for unblocking sinks. You can only imagine the suffering to make her reveal where she had hidden her savings. You don't need to imagine her suffering because I'm about to tell you what drinking drain cleaner would have done to poor Elise. Oh, fuck. It's, uh, and genuinely, it's so bad. I'm holding my tummy. It's a corrosive liquid. So if you swallow it, you're going to get chemical burns all down your throat and into your stomach. And those burns could burn all the way through. They could cause perforations. (gasps) Yep. What the fuck? How cruel. That's not it, my friend. Oh, If the fumes get into the lungs, they can start a chemical reaction which could then cause fluid to build up on the lungs and that can then cause all kinds of different effects which are potentially lethal. It's I just for me, it sounds so horrific and painful and it's just like an unbelievably cruel way to end somebody's life. All for the sake of to be able to go out partying. Yeah, like it's just unimaginable priorities there are just no no, nothing would justify that ever but just to know that that's why they want her money is just so they can have a lavish lifestyle and that is that like yeah I just don't understand why they need to go to that sort of lengths to be so cruel it's so that's it I think that's it's malicious in it yeah and um also I just think on a base level to sound completely dense 
isn't it really backwards thinking i want you to tell me where you've hidden your money so i'm gonna get you to pour this corrosive liquid down your throat yeah you know what i mean exactly like there's no there's literally there's there's no it sense in that there's no warrant for it no and um that's the bit that really got me with this one i just like actually just made me kind of fucking angry yeah because like what are you doing yeah why and also she was 84 poor woman She's that's 80, old. That's she's 80, so old. In the 80s, that's... That's good. That's ancient. Yeah. Isn't it? I have such a soft spot for the elderly and just picturing a defenceless, frail, 84-year-old woman that's being tortured like this. God, yeah, that makes me so mad. Yeah. It's like Mr. Moore said earlier, there's no glory. No. Like, it's horrible. Oh, so, no, no. during this two-month killing spree, people in the area became scared. The murders had sent shockwaves across the country, especially in Montmartre, district of Paris, where the majority of the crimes had taken place. Officers Claude Perronet and Jean-Claude Moule of Le Brigade Criminel, the French murder squad, remember the fear and panic that gripped Paris. We were under immense pressure. The only thing we were afraid of was being on call. In other words, would a phone call wake us up that night? Headquarters calling us about a case, telling us about the killing of an old lady. We dreaded finding more victims every time. I believe that what really struck public opinion was that the killer was targeting old, vulnerable, defenseless people. I believe that's what had the biggest impact on the public. There was no comparison between one murder and the next. It was the fact that these were defenseless people who were being killed. People wanted justice and pressure on the police was mounting. Detectives were scrambling to find any suspects. No one had seen anyone looking suspicious, hanging around flats or following older women. And this is absolutely mad to know, but there was no central police files at the time. So even though... They, you know, had found matching fingerprints at several of the crime scenes. There's no central database to actually check who they belong to. Oh. If they did have a way to check them, they actually would have been linked to Thierry straight away because he was already known to the police. Thierry's first run-in with the law was in Toulouse in June 1983 after he was convicted of a robbery. He was 19 at the time. And would you believe he... Classic. Go away with it. He holds up a grocery store, an old woman who's running a grocery store, uh, with a knife. Not the brightest thing to do, given the fact that she knew who he was and that uh, she lived to tell the tale. And he was indeed arrested and indeed sentenced to two years in jail for the attack. For some reason, and it's not entirely clear to me exactly what that was, Perhaps it was to do with his age, perhaps to do with the old woman saying, oh, be lenient. His two-year sentence was suspended. His fingerprints had already been taken, but there was no central database and they remained in a paper file in Toulouse. So there they were, forgotten, as if they didn't even exist. Anyway, they never served for anything, because if we had been able to compare the prints to those in Toulouse after the first murder we would have known that the prince belonged to Thierry Paulin and the other murders would never have happened. Question. 
Yeah. So his prints were in Toulouse. His prints were in Toulouse. So when they're saying there was no central... So it wasn't like now, you know, like how you see on Criminal Minds or whatever, like, oh, we found these prints, can you run them through the system? Yeah. And that when anybody in the country gets their fingerprints, they're logged on the database and then you can, and it will scroll through a match or, or, or even that these, you know, before, because, you know, computers were massive in the 80s, weren't they? They weren't really like a, a thing that everybody had, mm-hmm. like a paper codex of everybody's. Right. Um, or like even just one place where okay we've got these fingerprints somebody's going to go through every single print in this library I guess it's not realistic is it yeah that's There's, a big job yeah. <laughs> there's a lot so, of fingerprints uh, without computers I guess that's just something that could never really happen no um unless it was localized crime if for that oh yeah so his prints are in Toulouse they weren't in Paris they weren't so in they Paris. wouldn't have had them on file yeah so there's no centralized system right. to link all of these gotcha things together and to be fair, even if it was localised, say he had continued these crimes in Toulouse, I'm not sure unless it went to the exact same place where these other fingerprints were held. Is there somebody that goes through all the fingerprints they have on file to see if they match? Because also that's there's got to be a huge margin for human error there. Yeah, because it's done by... Mm. I think that's something that so far I'd never really thought about but have definitely really taken for granted that... That technology just sort of had to not exist at some point. Mm -hmm. By November 1984, Thierry and his partner in crime and in love, Jean-Thierry Maturin, had killed eight women in Paris in just over a month. Whoa. Yeah, it's a lot. That's an average of two a week. My God. Yeah. But then almost as suddenly as they had begun, the murders stopped. No one could explain why, and Officer Perrinet was stumped. They thought maybe the killers had been imprisoned or even hospitalised, so they sent fingerprints from the crimes all over the shop to different prisons and hospitals, so there must have been someone looking at them, uh, but found nothing. The killers had seemingly disappeared into thin air. The truth is actually much more normal. Uh, Thierry and Jean Thierry had simply moved away. Oh. Yeah, they'd gone back to Toulouse to live with Thierry's dad. But... I think as a lot of young couples uh, can probably relate to, moving in with the in-laws didn't quite work out so well for them. That did not turn out to be a success. Pauline and his father argued. Pauline's father fell out with Maturin, who he didn't care for. Pauline and Maturin fell out, and indeed the relationship collapsed. Maturin returned to Paris. Pauline decided to stay with his father for a time, but that didn't last either. They both ended up returning to Paris separately, but Maturin would never return to the life of crime that they led before, whereas Paulin did. He didn't stop. So that was in 1985. Uh, Thierry was then 22 when he moved back to Paris, and the murders then returned with him. Between December of that year and June 1986, seven months, another eight elderly women were killed. Eight. Eight, yeah. On top of the eight that they already did before they left. Oh my God. Dominique Rizé believes that money was actually his only motive. He needs to get a job. Yeah. Or a hobby. Yeah. Just something that doesn't involve robbing and killing old ladies. When you are so desperate for money, how your brain can go from shit, I need some cash to shit, I'll do some murdering to get some cash. That's just so extreme. But why? Well, Helen, Dominique Rizé is going to tell you why. Oh. 
Je pense pas qu'on puisse dire que c'est un tueur en série. I don't think we can say that he was a serial killer because a serial killer is a sadistic individual who takes pleasure in killing, who kills for the sake of it, for the pleasure of killing. That wasn't Pola. He kills for money. There was a police officer from the La Brigade Criminal who said he killed like he was going to the bank. I don't think he even realized the horror of what he had done. He attacked old ladies. He killed them, but in fact he acted as if he was going to get money from the ATM. But he killed them so they couldn't tell anyone. It's almost like he feels entitled to do that because he's been doing it and he's been getting away with it. So why stop? Like he said, it's like going to the ATM machine. It's probably just become like a habit. Yeah. Like like anything can become a habit or you get used to doing something if you if you do it regularly enough, obviously, but because he's been doing this and not being there's been no consequences. Like it to him it's he's just probably just desensitized to mm. actually what he's doing. And you just think, Oh, that's why how I get money. I'm surprised that Liz hasn't mentioned it yet, but as I was sort of reading a bit more about him, there was sort of quite a few theories thrown around about how obviously his grandmother very early in life was raising him and wasn't very loving and and perhaps that sort of started a or like you know ignited a, an ember of hatred towards elderly women perhaps yeah. yeah which would make sense because but i i i also think that he actually just really liked having money and they were an easy indefensible exactly. target yeah it wouldn't have been it's not hard work for him to get that yeah. like if he would have say broke into our house i'm fucking fighting the man yeah exactly I, i'm fighting the women does he want the effort i'm fighting whoever yeah oh they don't even have to have broken into my house to be fair <laughs> loitering outside <laughs> okay. just i just love to fight you and your twitching of your curtains <laughs> looking at people parking outside your house it's just like that's my space <laughs> get out you don't you don't live here <laughs> yeah. yeah but i to be fair i reckon it's probably just down to the convenience how easy it is going after eight-year-olds the thing it's is heartbreaking. It is, yeah that's just it they would have been an easy target and i just also don't think that the level of violence that was involved would have been necessary no unless to be fair my grandmum actually he'd probably have had to make her drink 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 <laughs> and she went she's not telling him anything no she's spitting in his face yeah yeah she'll have a fight yeah. She she would actually rather like genuinely, I think she would just be like, "Fine, kill me. I'm not telling you where to take my things." That's a real old lady thing to do as well. Like my I remember my great granny when she was alive. She had a few thousand quid stacked in the in the wardrobe. My my granddad had all of his savings underneath the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> they just don't trust banks. They don't, <laughs> and, and he actually didn't even tell my grandma where it was either under the stairs, it was somewhere mm. under the stairs. But it was hidden so well. He the only person that knew where it was was my mum. Yeah. So I think by the time that he'd spent the time looking for the cash, because they're going to have hidden it well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Like to be honest, and I I don't know how this is going to come across, but I think he's lazy. Yeah. Isn't like he's he's lazy. He don't want to work, so he's robbing people. But he can't be asked to like actually properly rob them uh so he's torturing them to get the information yeah because like, just tell just, me where it is just break in the middle of the night yeah rummage around everything you know what i mean yeah. like steal jewelry still mm. but you don't want to go pulling that off no he's going for the uh, cold hard cash 
So as the number of victims grew, police noticed that they all shared a similar fate. Thierry had developed an MO. À l'époque, j'étais entre guillemets spécialisé au niveau des autopsies criminelles et j'ai At the time, I was a specialist in criminal autopsies, and I was present at the autopsies of some of the grandmothers killed by Paulin. All the grannies were mainly strangled. None of the attacks were what you would call sexual. None of them. They mostly involved stopping the victim breathing, so killing them through mechanical asphyxia. I'm going to remember that. Asphyxique mécanique. All the grannies. Yeah, I don't. I don't <laughs> think that, that he didn't actually say that, did he? That yeah. translator's taken some license there, surely. Yeah. All the grannies. Yeah. Thierry was now back living in a hotel. He returned to entertaining the it crowd of Paris to try and boost his own popularity. Il savait qu'il était limité. He knew he was limited socially. He had aspirations to be something else, to be recognised, well-known and appreciated. He sought another kind of existence. He had an extremely human side to him. There were people around him, especially ex-lovers, who knew him as a very sensitive person, who could be immensely kind, considerate, extra careful and attentive to others, to those he loved. So how could such an individual, and it is this that is so Machiavellian, how could this type of character transform himself into a killer who commits the act in half a second? To se transformer en un tueur qui qui passe à l'acte en une demi seconde. So someone who is Machiavellian, because I've had to look it up. Yes, is cunning, scheming, and unscrupulous, especially in politics. And that is after Niccolo Machiavelli. No one knew that Thierry lived a double life and time was ticking. In August 1986, Thierry was arrested on the outskirts of Paris when a drug deal went wrong. He got into a fight with his dealer because he wasn't happy with the quality of cocaine he'd bought. He ended up assaulting the dealer who then called the police. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't expect it to go that way. No. Yeah. And Thierry was then imprisoned. So well, they both imprisoned because he was selling well, cocaine like, as that's well. That's what I thought. I'm like, you're a drug dealer. Yo, yo, cups. Uh, so I got a son because he doesn't like my cocaine. Okay, we're coming right down. You're both yeah. under arrest. Trading standards comes yeah. down. It's like, ooh. <laughs> that meant that Thierry's fingerprints were actually taken again. In Paris! In pa- but they weren't compared with the prints found <sighs> at the scenes of the murdered women. Uh. So, yeah, it means that they didn't know it at the time, but the police had actually missed their opportunity to solve one of the biggest cases. This always happens. I know. One of the biggest cases in French criminal history, they've got the guy there and they don't even know because there's no centralised system. I know. And you know what? The good thing about about technology is like, I wonder now if, you know, if you've got fingerprints from a crime scene where someone's been really murdery, do you reckon now, when they get new fingerprints, they just put, a, put it through like a, a system checker ev- by default, just yeah. to make sure? Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's exactly what they do. That's what happens on the TV. There's always someone checking prints. Garcia, can you run these prints? Just check these. We got some new prints and check, run these prints. Yeah, but if they don't turn up any matches, those prints are now in the system, so that next time... Mm. Yeah. 
So, uh, but it was France. It was the 80s. It's not like now. Flying cars and shit. We now have flying cars. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. I got carried away. <laughs> Even though they hadn't got in for the murders, Thierry spent the next 16 months in prison after assaulting his drug dealer. Peace was on the streets, finally. I don't know, if, not if the drug dealer was still out there. It's a shit cocaine. While he's there, and remember this is the middle of the 1980s, he begins to demonstrate the symptoms of HIV. By the time he is released from prison, he's fully aware that he is HIV positive, which at that point then was effectively a death sentence. So Thierry realised he didn't have much time left and he wasted no time on doing what he did best. Well, I suppose it doesn't matter if he get if he if there's any consequences now because he's he's on the way out anyway. Well, after he was diagnosed with AIDS, his offending really did escalate. And it wasn't just that, that he continued to kill people, but he, he engaged in almost kind of celebratory spree-like behaviour afterwards. So he would spend a lot of money. He would party for, for days on end. And I think that that realisation that his life was, was limited, um, he was aiming to, to enjoy it as much as he possibly could. And if that meant the trauma and the suffering of other people, then so be it. I know this might be a bit of a dark question, but if you knew that you had limited time left, they gave you six months, what would you do? Because I sometimes think about that. Cause, I actually think about this quite often. Because I just think, what would make me feel like I have made the most out of the time that I've been? Like, what do I want to do or complete before my time is up? It makes me sad to say it because I think that it means that I'm probably wasting my life a little bit, but I'd quit my day job mm. for definite. Right. Yeah, and I do think there's this like ideal philosophy that, oh, well, if you found out that you were going to die tomorrow, do you really want to, like, would you still go to work? Because, you know, if you still go to work, that means you love your job. But, like, yeah, I'd really, I'd just have bills to pay. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? I'd travel. I'd spend so much time with, I think that's the thing that I would value the most is time. Mm. So I'd see as many people. I would just be doing all the things. I'd be at festivals. I'd be at, well, how debilitated am I? For as long as I could. No, like, I mean, yeah. Yeah. If you had a, on this day, at this time. Right. You're going to just. Yeah, I'd be, I'd just, I'd do everything. I'd do everything I possibly could with as many people who I love as I possibly could. Mm. And in my head, it's me at festivals. So I hope that I got that news at the start of the summer. Or after, a, or just after a very successful festival season. I would probably withdraw all the cash that I have in my savings and I would just go all the places that I want to go to and I would book the nicest hotels I wouldn't buy anything I wouldn't buy material objects no I also feel that I would probably do this on my own like a a self-pilgrimage because as much as I have really great people around me who I love and enjoy their time I think it's almost like you're dangling something in front of them, like having all these moments. I don't know, maybe... I guess it depends on if they can come with you or not. Like, Yeah, like, like if they can come... I think it's more like, let's have all this lovely time together and it's going to be amazing and then I'm just going to not be any here anymore. It's almost like I would like to go do these things on my own for myself, to be at peace with myself, but also I'd probably feel a bit bad if I was giving everybody these ex- amazing experiences for to then just be not a, to die. 
and then to be sad. Okay, rude. <laughs> to be honest with you. I want to have that experience with you and then be sad when you die. Oh, okay. I'd much rather have that oh, experience Oh, okay, you can come you then. And uh, be like, fuck you, Helen, by yourself. <laughs> I just thought it would be upsetting that you... Well, yeah, it would be, but you're, you're going to die anyway. That's always going to be upsetting. Okay, take okay. Me with you All right, fine, I'll come, you can come too. I just didn't yeah. want to upset you any more than... Dick. <laughs> You definitely wouldn't do what he's doing. Let's I put wouldn't. It that way. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't keep like torturing and murdering women to take their money. Nah. Essentially, he didn't give many shits before, did he? No. He gives zero fucks now until November 1987, when Thierry was nearly caught. During one of his final attacks, he was actually scared off because the women he attacked had screamed, and luckily for her, the concierge heard and came running in to see Thierry escaping. The survivor was 87-year-old Bertha Vinalteri and she had been strangled and left for dead. Thankfully, though, she didn't die and detectives hoped that she might be able to provide a description of her assailant. But before she could, just two days later, Thierry murdered another woman, bringing the suspected total of victims to 21. Uh, So, you know, after committing two murders in two days, he did what every self-respecting murderer would do and he threw himself a 24th birthday party but and there is some quite nice retribution in this as Thierry partied Bertha Finalteri had finally recovered and given detectives a description of her attacker he is a big guy 1 meter 82 athletic 75 kilos Mixed race, with an earring. A haircut like Carl Lewis, blonde hair. A photo fit was created by the forensic department, the very same sketch that would be displayed in police and gendarmerie departments everywhere. I want to see what he looks like. Yeah, I'll show you a picture. Okay. He's tall and thin, and he's got bad skin. Show me. Okay, in this picture, he actually looks like Jaws from... Um, the like shark. Mi- like, no, no, not the shark. <laughs> from James Bond. Like, um, and he looks like a mixed-race Jaws, but blonde. He doesn't look very scary at all. No, and I do wonder if that worked in his favour. Yeah, um, he's got quite a, a friendly-looking face. Oh, look, here's a picture of him in drag. Let's have a look. Oh, my God, he's gorgeous in drag. Oh, Wow! Very glad. It's a proper glamour shot. Oh, he? yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. We'll put them on Instagram so you can see them. Yeah, check Devils in the Dark. At. <laughs> <laughs> on December 1st, 1987, just four days after claiming his final victim, Thierry Paulant was arrested on the streets of Paris. A police officer who had seen the photo fit sketch recognised him and took him down to the central police station for an ID check. Detectives interviewing Thierry had a plan to get him to confess. And they had a bottle of the same cleaning fluid that he used to kill Alice Benaim in 1984 in their arsenal. This story about the caustic soda is very important. When Thierry Paulin was arrested, he was taken to La Brigade Criminelle and put in front of a policeman who would be listening to what he had to say. And this policeman had placed a bottle of caustic soda under his desk. Paulin was opposite him talking about the murder of Alice Benaim. The officer said, And Alice Benaim? To which Paulin replied, yeah, I don't remember. There were two of you, Paulin. Really, I don't remember. Really. Listen, it would be good if you do remember. There were two of you. 
Pollan was finding it difficult to come up with anything to confess. And then the policeman stuck his hand in the desk, pulled out the bottle of chemicals and said, And this? What is this? Pollan replied, It's not mine, that's Maturin. And just like that, he provided the name of his accomplice. Ha 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 I know, and I, you didn't think that, like, well, what about this? Da-da! That it would actually work, but it did. I love it when people do things to make ac- people accidentally slip up with their words. So, yeah, but he admitted to having an accomplice. So although he admitted to killing 21 people, the police charged Thierry with 18 murders due to insubstantial evidence. And Thierry soon began to tell detectives everything they wanted to know. Je le savais malade du sida. Donc, déjà conscient de, d'une chronique de mort annoncée. I knew he was ill with AIDS, so already conscious of a chronicle of a death foretold. He knew that he was going to die. He had nothing left to lose, perhaps an urgent need to open up, to free himself. I would say even more to confess to the harm he had done, which meant that when he spoke to me, he told me everything. He got it all off his chest, demonstrating his extraordinary memory, his memory of the times, the locations and the details of the crimes he had committed. He relived everything he had done in front of me. That impressed me. Très rapidement, il a donné des détails pratiquement de chacun des It didn't take long for him to provide details of virtually every murder he had committed. He even told them the colors of the curtains, for example. Details about the crime scenes that only he could have known that no one else but the victims could have known. He was a cold, determined man. The kind you don't encounter very often as a police officer. Given the number of victims and the manner in which these people were killed, he didn't particularly show any remorse. It's all, I think it's almost a little bit annoying that he's like got away with it for as long as he could, and now he's like, oh well, I'm, I've, I've been caught, and I'm de- I'm, I'm going to die anyway, so here's everything. Mm. You know what mm. I mean? Mm. I, like, I just, I, I just keep calling him really bad names in my head. <laughs> I want to drop the C bomb, but you can't. Well, I could, but you know, I don't want to offend anyone, so I won't. But now you all know I'm thinking it. Thierry pointed the finger of suspicion directly at his ex-boyfriend, blamed him for everything. Uh, so, you know, this whole telling the police, you know, getting it all off his chest. He's obviously not turned a leaf. He's not trying to help anybody. Uh, he's blamed Jean-Thierry Mataran for everything. and But nothing came of it because there was too much evidence against Thierry. But Thierry never actually made it to trial. Why? Because on April 17th, 1989, Thierry Paulin died in the hospital wing of Friend Prison. Oh. Uh, he was 25 years old. Hmm. Paulin escaped the trial. Unfortunately, it was AIDS that killed him. And, of course, we can lament the fact that the mastermind, the instigator, was never brought to justice. This much is clear. Forgive me for being crude, but the criminal justice system took what was left. In other words, Maturin. This might sound really bad, but... I think if he had to escape justice, like he wasn't able to stand trial. He never got, you know, formally convicted of his crimes. Um, AIDS is a 
terribly horrible way to go. Yeah. And for somebody who did terribly horrible things, I think it's actually quite a fitting end. Yeah. Like, at least he suffered. Probably still not even close to the way he made all those women suffer. But, you know, it's a different kind of justice, I guess. I agree. So Thierry Paulin's death meant that his accomplice, Jean-Thierry Maturin, was left to face the weight of the French justice system alone. So Jean-Thierry's trial began in December 1991. He was on trial for the murder of eight women in just over one month during the autumn of 1984. Thierry Paulin might have been dead, but forensic psychiatrist Serge Bornstein says his presence was still felt in the courtroom. Oh, au procès, uh, le fantôme uh, de, de Paulin était là, uh, partout. Et... Uh, the ghost of Paulin was present throughout the trial, and they asked me to speak too, and I spoke about Maturin, but I brought up all of the encounters I had had with Paulin. So I described this wicked character and his hatred for humanity, especially old ladies, and that really interested the court. He may no longer have been there, but his ghost hovered over the room. It was unbelievable. I think that even if he had been given the means to do so, Paulin would never have found redemption, because he had a hard core of criminal perversity within him. Well, obviously, I would have requested the maximum mandatory prison sentence for Paulin. I wanted Maturin to receive a slight reduction in his mandatory sentence to really indicate the difference between the two and to do as if Paulin was also present, as if he was there too, in a certain way. You have to realize that at the time, we had just abolished the death penalty. And because of that, people were marching in the street, calling for the murderer of these old ladies to be executed. On December 20th, 1991, four years after his arrest, Jean-Thierry Maturin was given a life sentence for his part in the murders. But this was not the end of the story. He then filed a request for conditional release which is similar to parole, right. in 2007. So he was released in January 2009 after having spent a total of 21 years in prison. Uh, how does that work? We, we, it's this ongoing discussion that we've had. Uh, people who have joined, joined us from season one will know that we've sort of debated this a few times. Can somebody truly change or can they truly atone for their uh sins for want of a better word and come out reformed michelle arnold the the defense lawyer sort of does sort of say a bit about how you should never lose your faith in humanity and even if you have a committed a terrible atrocious act that you can work towards turning over a new leaf with sincere remorse and desire to redeem yourself and i guess in some part maybe perhaps that is true i think it depending on sort of the person who has committed the crimes and in the case of uh jean thierry maturin he did it like he he helped he helped uh thierry paulin do that but say they'd never met 
Would he have done it? Would he have would he have ever killed anybody? No. I don't think he would have. Whereas Thierry Paulin would have. I think would have. Because he carried on doing it without Jean Thierry Matarin. I think that that is I think I do think there there is a difference between the two of them. Mm. And that is completely demonstrated by the way when they split when they went their separate ways, only one of them carried on doing it. Yeah, but it's also questionable as to why he didn't do anything about it at the time. Like, if he truly was a good person deep down, why didn't he just... Oh, yeah, no, uh, I'm not saying... I'm not discounting the fact that he stood by and watched or, either yeah. watched or helped. We're never going to really, truly know. Torture and kill eight women. That's still horrific and despicable. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. He's sort of... he did. He, at least he served a long sentence. 21 years. I it's not still, still think life. the punishment should be dished out and he should have stayed in there. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> and I think a lot of people would agree. A lot of people agreed. And at the time, the initial trial started, I think it was like a year after they'd abolished the death sentence in France. So there was a lot of people in France sort of claiming that they should be executed. Mm. When I picture the like French execution, because in America, when I think of execution, I think of the electric chair. But when I think of the French execution, I just think of the gallows because I've watched so many history programmes or historic movies that are sent in France and it's all like medieval, not medieval, but I, you know I mean? Like old. And so I just think of, oh, they got the gallows out they, and they hung them in the street and people would come around and watch. But obviously it was the 80s, so I wonder how, what did they do? Did they have an electric chair too? So you say that. But actually, the last execution that took place by guillotine, being the main legal method since the French Revolution, was in September 1977. No way! Yeah. So, I, mean, I, I mean, I'm not, like, happy about that, but... Right? You just picture that to be proper, like, like a medieval. old sh- Yeah. No. Wow! Up until 1977. What did it look like? Executing. A 70s guillotine. I wonder if you can buy them in like a flea market. You probably, probably somebody does have one somewhere. Wow. Because that is the type of thing that people would collect, wouldn't they? So in September... That's 19- mad! It was September 1981 that France outlawed capital punishment altogether and the guillotine was retired. Oh my God. Although he was never convicted because of his premature death. Yes. Thierry Paulin is still remembered in France as the monster of Montmartre. He was a vile being, a real monster. He really was the worst criminal I have ever seen in the course of my long career. The worst. I think he was a wicked young man. I think he was deeply troubled. But that is no excuse for the deaths of 19, 20, 21, 22 elderly women, nor for the brutal manner of many of their deaths. How can you kill a granny without thinking about what she stands for and all that kind of thing? He had a savage side to him, devoid of all forms of humanity. Dénué de toute forme d'humanité. And that was the case of Thierry Paulin. An interesting. Mm. I just want to say that Jean-Claude Moule, that's the second or third time that he's referred to the, the elderly ladies as grannies. Uh, that's got my back up a bit. Like, we don't know that they were grannies. We don't know that they were grandmothers. Just because they're old. Uh, doesn't mean doesn't, you were a granny. Yeah. And I just, just, people shut forget, up, Jean-Claude. People forget that old ladies 
Um, like, granny's by default. <laughs> so I've already decided what kind of old lady I'm going to be. Oh, okay. Um, and a wench. <laughs> yeah. I'm joking. A giant slut. <laughs> I am going to be a giant slut. Um, I'm not only if Baker's not around still, obviously. I don't suppose you watch Only Murders in the Building. Nope. There's a lot of people who listen to this podcast that will do. Uh, great show. Um, I'm now on series two. And there is uh, the mother of one of the victims has... Uh, that's I don't think that's a spoiler. It makes an appearance and she's she's just fabulous. And she wants a cocoa... She, she drinks cocoa teenies, which is like coconut martinis. Mm. And she's got like short hair and she wears all like sequins and like cool. prints. Really fashionable. You know, Love like that. New, New York. Yeah. 80s, 80-year-old women. Like... Mm-hmm. yeah and like she don't take no shit and she just she's powerful and that's what i'm gonna be like i've decided okay i'm gonna move to key west of the florida keys and i'm gonna own a cool little house wooden house which is gonna be painted flamingo pink and I'm going to have a big porch. I'm going to sit there and I'm going to drink margaritas on my porch. I'm going to sit there and drink my red neck margarita, watch TV through the door. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. And okay. I'm going to wear a little hat, little straw hat and some sunglasses, some nice big sunglasses. I'm going to be wrinkly and very, very brown and not wear a, wear a little bikini. We're all saggy and floppy. Yeah. And I'm just going to sit there on my porch. I'm not going to be American though, because I'm British. I'll sit there on my porch. I'm going to sit there margarita. on my porch, my margarita, with my, with my house that I bought with my retirement. I fully support that for you. And I will come and visit. And that was it. I mean, we could have talked about, we could have talked about the actual, the horrible, disgusting murders that we just covered in the well, I don't the want to, there, but I don't want horrible. to. Yeah, because I don't think he's worth any more of our time, Terry Paula. So there you go. You've got a nice little window into our our elderly years there i hope you all enjoyed it (laughs) just to lighten the mood yeah (laughs) right so next time on devils in the dark with me helen anderson and me danny howard we're taking a look into the infamous criminal siblings the cray twins Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of Devils in the Dark. In the meantime, if you've been affected by... In, sorry. <laughs> in the meantime, I was being a crate. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please do check out the description for lots of lovely, helpful resources. Special thanks to Woodcut Media and our wonderful producers over at Audio Boom Studios. Thank you. Bye-bye. The craze. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to get you. <laughs>